0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 2. Second chapter in the Bible, we made it through the first chapter last week. Um, <laughs> it took us a little while to get through that, but it was fun and I hope that it was informative. Chapter 2 is interesting Because it gives us really the only glimpse that we have into the pre-fall world. Uh, We don't know much about it at all. And everything that we see in science and observation comes from after the fall. When entropy was introduced, uh, the bondage of decay, as Paul calls it. So we get this little glimpse of what it was like in the garden and before the fall. It's, it's really interesting as we move through here. Let's read verses 1 through 14 together, and then we'll go back through it and look at it in greater detail. Chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the per- first is Pishon, it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third re- river is Hiddekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. So we get a little layout there of Eden and the rivers in the Garden of Eden. Back up to verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. I wanna point out to you that verses four through seven of chapter two are really just summing up the events of chapter one. These first three verses really tie up the creation week nicely. God rests on his seventh day. He saw everything that he had made and indeed it was exceedingly good. And that's how the last chapter ends. It was a perfect creation. Complete with man and everything that man would need to survive and thrive. Since God had just finished creating everything, chapter 2 opens with the statement that the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Everything that was to be created had been created. The creative processes God used during the six days of creation had ceased. And processes of preservation now take over. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Did God rest because he was just worn out from creating the universe? Absolutely not. No chance. Isaiah forty twenty eight says that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. He doesn't get tired like we do. Psalm 121.4 says that he who keeps Israel, that is the Lord, shall neither slumber nor sleep. Of course, God doesn't get weary. So the question now becomes, why did God need to rest on the seventh day if he wasn't tired? And the answer to that is, well, he didn't need to rest, but he chose to rest. And the Hebrew word translated rested in verse 2 carries more meaning than our word rest. By far, this word is most often often translated cease. There are 47 instances of it translated cease compared to the 11 instances of it translated rest. So there is this idea of stopping, just pausing a work. It carries this idea of a purposeful cessation from labor. This word is Shabbat. This should sound familiar to you. What did the Jews call the Sabbath? Shabbat. Rest. Now, these are two different words that's translated rest here, and the Shabbat uh, for the Sabbath. But the word for rest is the root word for Shabbat, Sabbath. It's a cessation from work. If this rest of verse 2 is a purposeful cessation of God's work, we can take that to mean a couple things, and these are important. Everything that God purposed in his heart to make, he made. And he said in 131 that it was exceedingly good. There was no sin, no death, nothing to mar his perfect creation. And everything was made that was going to be made. The second thing we can take from that, the work that God ceased from was his creative work. He only ceased on that seventh day from his creative work. So there's a strong case to be made here that creative processes are no longer in effect. In other words, this marked the end of God's creative work. There was no creation after this. But God didn't kick back on a cloud and just watch his centuries pass by. He is still intimately involved in his creation. And according to our known physical laws, the universe should just fly apart. Atoms should not be able to be held together. The positive protons and neutral neutrons shouldn't be able to cohere. They shouldn't be able to bunch up into the nucleus of atoms. The force that allows them to behave that way is termed the strong nuclear force. And it's actually the strongest known force in our universe. It's 6,000 trillion, trillion, trillion times stronger than the force of gravity. That's six with 39 zeros after it, times stronger than gravity. And they don't know how this force works. No scientist can explain truly how this force works. I would suggest that it's just God preserving his creation. So he did cease from creation, but he did not cease from preservation. We know that this is the case simply from his word. Colossians 1.17 says that, he is before all things, and in him all things consist, or are held together. Nehemiah 9.6 reads, You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. God has continued this work of preservation until now. And the processes that we can observe in nature today are processes of conservation, not creation. This is well-established scientifically. For example, our laws of thermodynamics are some of the most basic laws that govern how our physical universe operates And they all speak of conservation, not creative processes. The first law of thermodynamics is actually called the law of conservation of matter or energy. And we can take matter and energy as the same thing for these purposes. This basically states that matter cannot be created or destroyed. It's the first most basic law of our universe. This makes perfect sense Because verse 2 says that God ended his work, which he had done, that work of creation. All the matter that needed to be created, he created. The second law is known as the entropy law. And like the name suggests, it establishes the existence of entropy in a thermodynamic system. Heat doesn't spontaneously pass from a colder to a hotter body. It's always the other way around. It always goes from hot to cold. In other words, things are running downhill, and energy is becoming less and less available. In every exchange of heat that we have, any exchange of energy, there's a leak. Nothing is 100% efficient. You run your car on the way here, it heats up. Some of the energy that should be used to propel your car forward, is leaked in the form of heat. Where does that heat go? Where does that energy go? It's lost. You can't get it back. Things are running downhill. Paul makes reference to this entropy law in Romans 8, 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The bondage of corruption. That's his term for the second law of thermodynamics. And we're not going to worry about the third law right now. It's a bit technical, but we'll move on. So on the seventh day, God ceased from his creative activities, but he didn't take his hand off of his creation completely. And he would soon undertake a much more important work than creation. What could be more important than creation? Redemption. Absolutely. How can you tell how important something is? How can you tell how important something is to God? One way is to look at how much space the Bible dedicates to a topic. Speaking of creation, we have Genesis 1, and maybe you can count Genesis 2 in there. You've got a couple chapters in Job, maybe a couple Psalms, and several verses throughout the Bible all speak of creation. How much space is dedicated to God's work of redemption? That's literally what the Bible is. The Bible is a revelation to us of God's plan of redemption. The whole thing. It all points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. You can also tell how important something is By what someone is willing to pay for it. What did it cost God to create the entire universe? Well, He spoke it all into existence. It cost Him a few words. But our redemption was the most costly thing in the universe. It took the death of God, and that was a price that he was willing to pay for you. He knew the price, and he chose you anyways, and that's how I know that redemption is more important than creation, and God was about to undertake this most important work of bringing man back into fellowship with him. We all know what happens in chapter 3. You've read it before. Man sins and his fellowship with God is broken. And then God starts this work of redemption. From that moment, he pronounces that the seed of the serpent would be crushed by the seed of the woman, Jesus. The rest of the Bible is God's plan of redemption unfolding Our redemption is the most costly thing in the universe. Verse three, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now God sets apart the seventh day as holy. And it says, because in it he rested from his work of creation. Now, we've already established that God didn't need to rest because he was tired, but he chose to rest. Why did he choose to rest? It's just to set an example for man to follow. This isn't really spelled out for us until Exodus 20:11, when God gives the 10 commandments to Moses. There, God gives his reasoning for making this seventh day holy. He says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, that implies causation, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He set it apart. And, of course, the Sabbath is a day of rest for man And in Mark 2.27, Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God knew that man would need to rest. He set an example for us. Man couldn't keep on working like God could. So God established this pattern of six work days and one rest day. And that was for man. But it doesn't end there. The Sabbath served still another purpose. Now, I don't want to confuse you because this is not the institution of the Sabbath. That comes later. But this is the pattern for which the Sabbath follows. The Sabbath serves still another purpose. In his very next breath, in Mark 2.28, Jesus says, therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's claiming that he's the ultimate reality of what the Sabbath foreshadowed. In fact, he formed this pattern of six and one. Jesus is the one who is the creator that rested on the seventh day. Outside of him, nothing was made that was made. I believe the writer of Hebrews helps us understand the ultimate picture of the Sabbath. The ultimate picture. He just lays down a few breadcrumbs in chapter 4. He's mostly proving the point that the rest found in the promised land was not the ultimate rest but that another rest was still yet to come. That's his main point, but he, he does drop these breadcrumbs about this Sabbath rest. Let's look at Hebrews 4.4. 4. Here in verse 4, he shifts from that speaking of the promised land and that rest to a mention of Genesis 2.2. 2. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That's a reference to Genesis 2-2, where we are this morning. And then in verses 8-10, through he goes on to say, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So the the writer hearkens back to that reference of the Sabbath in that last verse, in verse 10. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. This shows us exactly what the Sabbath rest is supposed to foreshadow. Our rest in Christ. When we are in Christ, we can stop trying to be good enough to get into heaven. We can cease from the toil of our works. So we find rest in this life. But even beyond this life, we will enter an eternal life. Rest with him. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And I'll mention again that. We got the sequence of events in chapter 1, but here through verse 7 in chapter 2, we're getting a quick recap of what we've already seen in chapter 1. And verse 4 is the first use of this compound name for God, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Until now, he's just been referred to as God Elohim but now he begins to be called the Lord God. And you'll see that name used um, a lot in the next several verses. Throughout Genesis, you'll see this phrase, these are the generations of someone's name. Here in verse four, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That word translated history is the same that's translated generations in other places. It's Toledoth. This phrase marks the end of what we believe to be a primary source document that Moses had access to when he was writing Genesis. And that situation kind of sounds like what Luke talked about in the opening of his gospel. He, he said that he gathered the eyewitness accounts and he was guided from above, Anothan. In other words, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit in the writing and compiling of his records. So he actually referenced primary source documents. He talked to eyewitnesses in compiling his gospel. This sounds a lot like that. There are 11 of these sections marked by this word Toledoth, generations, or the records of the origins of. The account of events contained in these sections are thought to have been originally recorded by the men that are named in them. For example, later on we'll see this is the generations of Adam. So we would think that that space, that those records would be originally written down by Adam. And we need to remember that Adam was created a genius. He wasn't walking around with a club, trying to start a fire, he was naming all of God's creatures. He had the capacity for language, of intelligent thought. He was a direct creation from God. He certainly would have been able to write down some mere facts about what he was seeing. And it does seem that Adam is writing right here, Because there's a shift in tense after verse 10 to the present tense. It seems an eyewitness was writing this. See, in verse 10, he says, Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. Went out, became, is in the past tense. Then in 11, the name of the first is Pishon. It shifts to the present tense. It's like Adam was sitting, looking over these rivers and writing down what he was seeing, what he was actually looking at. So we think that Moses did have access to these certain records as he was compiling and writing the book of Genesis, no doubt under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse five, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. There was no rain before the flood. And that can shock us sometimes if that's the first time that you're hearing that. But the Bible says that there was no rain in these days and this actually makes sense when you look at the account of the flood because nobody believed noah that it was going to rain you know and we see that it wasn't just hard to believe because of the magnitude of destruction noah was prophesying but because that very method of judgment rain flood had never been witnessed before it was a completely foreign concept to them It'd be like if I told you it was gonna jumbly do. You're like, what in the world? What is this guy saying? It was a it was a foreign concept to them. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So this is how the earth was irrigated before the flood. It was a mist or a fog, or a vapor. Some people try to turn this word mist into river. That just doesn't work. There are no other instances of that word being translated as a river. It is a mist, fog, or a vapor. And I tend to think of this like a dew that's found on the ground, but I'm not sure if that's really accurate. It may be, but it may not be. It may be more like the refrigerated produce aisle in the grocery store when the sprinklers kick on and it keeps the the veggies fresh. I don't know exactly what this system looked like, um, but it does speak of some sort of vapor, some cloud or mist that waters the ground. But regardless of the specifics, it does seem like the hydrological cycle of the pre-flood world was largely subterranean. You know, we're used to this atmospheric hydrological cycle, but this one was subterranean. Before the, the flood broke up all of those waters underneath the earth, uh, there was this vast network of spring-fed rivers that actually watered the land. And the vapor canopy that we talked about several weeks ago would also help to inhibit the cycle of rainfall as we know it today. Evaporation would have still occurred, but much more localized so that each night the evaporated water from these rivers would sit over the surrounding land like a dense blanket of fog and actually water that land surrounding the rivers. And to me, it seems like a little more efficient way to do things. And that makes perfect sense because this is a system that God engineered. It's remarkable. And Henry Morris has a great little snippet about this. He was an engineer, and he wrote the Genesis record, which I've already referred to a couple times. But if you want more details on that, I would point you to him. He's got some good stuff. Verse 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The body of man being formed from dust, but God providing the very essence of his life. Notice that this is a very personal and intimate act that's stated here. It doesn't say that God reached down to breathe life into the animals. However, we do know from other places that this breath of life is in the animals too. But it says here that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. Literally, he puffed the breath of life into Adam. Now, this word for breath, isn't Ruach, which we talked about as when spirit last week, I think it was, or the week before. uh, It did occur to me that I might have implied last week that this was Ruach. I want to make clear that this is not Ruach. This word translated breathed is never translated spirit like Ruach is. Now, the word breath that comes a few words later is sometimes translated spirit. It's just a couple of other places, but that word also is not Ruach. So I want to be clear about that. At the moment that God breathed life into Adam, he became a living being. It wasn't millions of years that had to transpire. There wasn't transitional forms that he had to go through. The moment God breathed life into Adam, he was a living being, and that constitutes all of who Adam is. Not pieces of him, but the whole man himself. He was who he was meant to be. Verse 8. From verse 8, we get the sense that Eden was a region, and we'll look at this. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man Whom he had formed. So Eden is actually a region. God planted a garden within Eden and placed the man there. And down in verse 15, we see that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. It says in verse 8 that God planted a garden eastward in Eden, it seems that the reference point is where God created man. So from where he created man, eastward was the garden. And it's useless to try to figure out where the Garden of Eden was, because we have no geographical reference points that are used here after the flood. So we don't know where this is, but this tells us only one thing. God created Adam somewhere west of the Garden of Eden, and he placed him then in the garden. Verse 9 says, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I want you to try to imagine This garden. The gardener is God. You know, we have some pretty magnificent gardens. You know, the Dallas Arboretum is pretty cool. You've probably been to some really big, extravagant gardens. But imagine this garden planted by God the size of all the plants. You know, we've found fossils that are huge there's been 40-foot asparagus-like plants found. Just massive. And those asparagus-like fossils had very small root systems, which tips us off to a couple things. One, the soil was very nutritious. There's a lot of nutrients in that soil. And with shallow roots, you know that there's not a lot of wind little to no wind to contend with. And that would make sense with this canopy idea and, and a fairly even tropical climate through the whole earth. This all lines up here. As God is planting this garden for Adam, it says that he made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The variety must have been awe-inspiring. And God specifically planted trees that were pleasing to Adam's visual capacity. There was the thought, I want to make this beautiful for man. He wanted it to be for Adam's enjoyment. God delighted in giving Adam a good place to live. It says also that the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we won't spend a lot of time here this morning because we're going to talk about these trees when we get to chapter 3. But they are both real trees that were planted in this garden. They're not merely symbolic, although they do carry some symbolic meaning as well as being literal trees. Verse 10. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. This network of four rivers that watered the garden originated from one river in the region of Eden. That's what it's saying here. Since there was no rain yet, the river would have had to have been fed by an underground water source. It's likely that this subterranean reservoir was heated from an underlying source, like the Earth's mantle. It was heated up, and it would be pressurized so that it would rise to the surface where it would feed this spring of water. The four rivers that this one splits into are now going to be named And described. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. The Pishon is thought by some to be the Ganges or the Indus River of modern day, but it's useless to try to relate these antediluvian rivers to our modern rivers. These rivers were present in the days of Adam. They were utterly destroyed in the upheaval by the flood, and the geography is completely different today. There's no use. In fact, Peter writes that the world which then was before the flood was destroyed. It's, it's not the same that we have today. There is... Certainly no use in trying to relate the geography of these rivers to current rivers, but we still see these names used. You know, Euphrates is probably the most well-known one of these four, but that name is used for a modern river. That doesn't mean that that river was there at this time. There seems to be a memory of things in the past, uh, things before the flood that were passed down. In fact, there's a lot of names here in just these few verses that we see used after the flood. Well, look at that. The names of these rivers and geographical areas seemed to still be in the minds of these post-flood men. Havilah was the name of a son of Cush and a son of Joktan. Havilah is also used of the geographical region post-flood. Verse 12, it says, And the gold of that land is good. Thank goodness, right? You wouldn't want bad gold. Well, Adam could probably be a little more picky about his gold. I think we all would be happy to have any kind of gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and the onyx stone are there. What these things are exactly, the bedelium and the onyx stone, we don't know. We can make inferences, but we're just not sure. There's another reference to bedelium in numbers 11:7, and that reads, "Now the manna was like coriander seed, and it's color like the color of bedelium." So the color of this bedelium resembled the manna from heaven. The general consensus is that this was some sort of sweet gum-like resin that tasted good. And the onyx stone is mentioned several times in scripture, but we actually don't really know what that is either. We don't know what kind of stone it is. Some suggest that it's beryl, chrysosoprase. There's a bunch of conjectures here but all we know that it is that it was a precious stone and it must have been very valuable because it's mentioned alongside gold that's what we know about the onyx stone verse 13 the name of the second river is Gihon it is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush so the name of the second river is Gihon Some writers will suggest that the Gihon is the Nile. Again, we don't know. That is speculation to the highest degree. Cush is also a name used after the flood and is also used later in scripture to refer to both the region of Arabia and the land of Ethiopia. So kind of a north, middle-ish, and east Africa area of modern day. Uh, That's where the descendants of Cush would have settled. Verse 14, the name of the third river is Hittikel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. Okay, Hittikel, the name Hittikel is given to another river after the flood. And we know that river as the Tigris. So you've got the Tigris and the Euphrates there in the Middle East. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The Bible talks plenty about the Euphrates River. It's actually, I would venture to say it's the most important river in the Bible, save for the river of the water of life. The Euphrates River. It's prevalent in both the Old and New Testaments. The antediluvian Euphrates might have been destroyed, but the new Euphrates was well-known post-flood. And it was certainly known by the New Testament writers that would refer to it. So don't let this trip you up that the river changed places or what have you, because after the flood, everybody knew where this new Euphrates was. It wasn't an issue. And when you see the Euphrates referenced in the New Testament, you know that it's actually referencing the same Euphrates that we see today. So, we're going to stop there this morning. Verse 14. Next time we're together, and I'm here, we'll finish out chapter 2. We'll get to see God place Adam in the garden, and he will make a suitable helper for him, which is exciting. The institution of marriage is put into place. Marriage is the only institution that we have still today from before the fall. Marriage is important. What did we see in this first half of chapter two? Let's recap really quick. God created for six days and he ceased from that creation on the seventh day, which he blessed and sanctified. He set it apart as holy. We have a recap of the creation week and this profound statement in verse 7 that God breathed into Adam the breath of life. And that word life there is actually plural in the original language. He breathed into him the breath of lives. Interesting. It kind of carries this idea of all the lives after Adam. He would pass down whatever his nature was. It kind of interesting. God breathed into Adam the breath of lives. And we get a glimpse into the garden that God planted specifically for man. The beautiful trees, vegetation, and irrigation systems of the garden. Can you imagine if Adam brought home a rose for Eve? Back it in, boys. Let's go. It would be so massive. She'd have to be happy for at least a month, right? (laughs) And it, it wouldn't wilt. It would, it would stay beautiful. You know, these are the things that I think about. <laughs> <laughs> All of this that we see is giving you the setting for the second half of chapter 2 and actually for chapter 3 as well, which unfolds in the garden. Chapter 3 is going to be a major inflection point. The trajectory has changed. The fall of man. And there are dramatic changes that happen both to Adam and to the rest of creation. If you think about it, Adam was made of the dust. He was the earth man. So whatever happens to Adam is subsequently spread to creation. He's kind of the emissary to God, if you will. So we're going to see some really, really tough changes coming our way in chapter 3. But let's close today in a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed.